Hello, everyone. Welcome to the eighth episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games, and specifically, playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Ruben. Hey, guys. And Mordai. Good evening. We are all moderators on Mythweavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help bring your game to the next level. If you're not familiar with Mythweavers, you can find it at myth-weavers.com. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of Mythweavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have multitasking in play-by-post, maps and movement, and part five of our player archetype series, all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. Our first topic on the agenda is multitasking in play-by-post. So, to get started, what is multitasking, and how can you even do it on the internet? Well, multitasking, strictly speaking, is doing more than one task at once. And while you're technically not doing it at once, the asynchronous nature of play-by-post means that you can effectively multitask by taking on several games or several threads within a game Roughly concurrently. And due to the asynchronous time, you can actually multitask a lot better online than you can in real life. Sure. So you can spend a lot of time focusing on one post, and then shortly thereafter, you can spend just as much time focusing on another post. Right. Unlike in the tabletop, where the amount of time you spend on one person means that's the amount of time you're not spending on somebody else. All right, so what are some good, bad, ugly, indifferent things that we can do to make multitasking an easier thing on play-by-post? Well, I think the most obvious is using multiple threads within your game forum for multiple players and the multiple tasks that you're undertaking at the same time. And when you do this, you can even use the cool thread tags to kind of keep them all organized for different people. Uh, You can also use the private tags as well. Private tags and thread groups are a couple of the very interesting and useful features of Mythweavers in that you can not only segregate the threads into specific groups, say a thread regarding all of the in-character interactions, a thread regarding player applications. Uh, these groups act somewhat as filters on the forum so you can keep the main part of the forum where the current part of the game is running much cleaner. Private tags also allow you to not only keep a thread private to certain people, but also keep a different thread, say, excluded from those same people so that they don't have uh, information that might lead to metagaming-type behaviors. I think the most common and obvious example of this is if you need to split the party or if you're running for multiple groups of players, then you have one group that is generally in their own thread group with their own private threads, and then the other group is kept separate through the tools in the game forum. One other tool I've also used is the uh, forum folders. I've uh, set up a couple of different folders for different locations, too. That also works. One of the things that you can do with uh, multiple threads is if you have multiple groups that are interacting within the same story world at the same time, and it's possible for them to come in contact with each other, you can run them within the game, same game forum. Now, if you're running two separate groups through the same adventure and it's not going to be possible for them to interact, the best way to handle this is to have two separate forums. So ultimately, kind of what this this organization leads to is it kind of creates the illusion 
that you're spending all, or the GM is spending all of their focus on each individual group. And even though that's not really true necessarily, it kind of helps keep your players feeling like the game is important to you as well as to them. Which, in some respects, kind of lets you run multiple games without actually running multiple games, because you're using the same kind of application process and world materials with multiple groups. It's like being able to run multiple games without as much of the overhead. So that's definitely true. When you have, when you only have to advertise and recruit once for a game, but you have multiple groups within that game, it makes the entire process a lot smoother. The, both groups can start at approximately the same time. The recruitment phase ends all at the same time. It just cuts down all of the hassle of having multiple games, except it's just one. And, you know, in the past, I've done this. And what happened is invariably over time in the play-by-post game, you're going to have some players leave or just stop posting in situations like that, I eventually was able to take the two groups I had and just mush them down into one group and keep the game going. It's kind of like almost having a backup set of players ready to go. Yep, I think we all have that particular experience. I think two of my three first games did exactly that. One genre that benefits really well from the ability to private information and keep it restricted from players are things involving mystery or suspense. A Call of Cthulhu game comes to mind. As a, as a great example of information being segregated to certain players, sometimes even partially restricted from those players, can allow you to create an atmosphere where the characters and their players don't really know everything that's going on and they have to interact with each other to figure it out. Uh, it's also good if you have games that require a lot of uh, multiple locations, like Shadowrun. So you're going to have separate threads for the rigger and the hacker who are out in the van versus the rest of the infiltration team who's inside the corporate facility. So the other thing that's really good about being able to split things up like this is when you get people who don't post at the same rate, then it lets you have more time to pay attention to the more active people while the less active people are still coming up with ideas or discussing a potential uh, solution or plot or whatever it is that's going on. And the other thing I've found, too, is you don't actually have to do this the whole time. I've used this technique to start all my players separately and then merge them all together into a more traditional game later, but it kind of lets you get a feel for each player separately before you throw them all together so you've got a couple more plot hooks to use and stuff like that. That leads us very well into the Next mini topic, which is things that aren't so great about multitasking in play by post. So when you have a situation like that where all the players are separate, then it potentially can bog down the game because it, it feels like it's multiple games all in one. So if you have six players and they're all separate, then that's six posts you have to make and all of the, well, your attention ultimately gets divided between those. And it can feel like you're running six games when really you're only trying to run one. Yeah, and this can even sneak up on you, too, that, you know, it may only start as a couple of separate threads, but then you add a third, and then you add a fourth, and before you know it, you're making four times as many posts as you used to, and it's really easy to get overwhelmed. Yeah, this is a critical aspect that can't be overlooked. One of the most common questions that we get asked by new persons to the play-by-post format is, 
how many games should I run at a time? How much should I participate? And the limit is based on the number of posts that you can make a day, not the number of games that you're in. So if you take a game and split it into three parallel threads that you have to post one post in each of those three threads, you've tripled the amount of work for that one game. So it it can very quickly become overwhelming. Uh, that's a frequent cause of game death early on, too. And Ruben, I've certainly used the uh, separate thread for separate players as kind of a prologue introduction. But if you've got a group of six players, you're starting off making six times as many posts. So your level of overwhelming amount of posts having to make really hits you early on and can lead new GMs to, to feel like they just can't keep up. Oh, for sure. I've had a couple games die because of that. You know, it sounds so manageable when you start, and then reality sets in, and oh-oh. And when we talk about posting rate, one of the things that we don't often take into account when we're putting together a group of players is, do they have relatively similar posting rates? So if you have that six separate threads, you can end up with the prolific poster getting to the point where you thought you were going to bring everyone together much, much quicker than the others. They have to wait, they get disinterested, they drop the game, and it can all fall apart if you can't manage to herd them all back into that common point roughly concurrently. Yeah, and when that happens, there's just really no easy way to bring them back together either. Either you make the active poster wait, in which case they become an inactive poster, or you kind of skip ahead for all the other you know, inactive posters, and now they're very lost. So another thing I'll po- I'll bring up is in the situation where it kind of starts as a normal game and then it gets to the point where the players are presented with a choice between two options, one of their first instincts will be, oh, well, just half of us go deal with the other thing and the other half go deal with the other. And if playing any tabletop role-playing game has taught me anything, it's that in- potentially can be very bad to split up the party like this. Not only are they missing half of the players, which means that potentially, like, a very important role like the healer ends up in one group but not in the other. As D. Jacob 91 puts it, don't split the party. And yes, that is pretty much exactly what I'm trying to say ultimately. It can lead to some awkward combat. It can lead to them needing one of the other players and them not being there. It's usually just a bad idea in general. Tiffany Corda points out in text chat that a forum which is split up into multiple private threads can feel kind of empty to each of the players because they don't know what's going on in the other threads. They don't have a sense that things are moving along, and so they can feel like they're disconnected. Sure. So even in a situation like that, you kind of have to manage your players and make sure that if what they're doing can affect one another, they communicate about that. And even though like timelines can get shifted, It's still important for everyone to know that, hey, yes, things are still happening, even if you can't see them happening. It makes the out-of-character chat even more vital. Yeah, and really, just if you're going to do this, you need strong GM communication skills across the board. You just have to let people know this is the situation. Hey, Bob's not really posting much this week, so I've instead been focusing on what Sarah is doing. And how about you, George? Would you like a bit more attention as well? You really have to be open with the communication. Probably the worst example I've seen of this, it sounds like a great idea right up until you actually try and execute it, is where you create a game where the GM is the only mode of interaction between the players, but they're all playing in the same world. Oh my goodness, that's a huge number of cross posts to make from thread to thread so that the players don't know who each other is 
and that just can lead to chaos, especially once you get into a more complicated situation like combat. Oh, yeah, having to, like, relay what other people are doing. It's just dumb. Well, no, sorry, I shouldn't say dumb. It's not the easiest choice you should make, and as a GM, you should always be as lazy as you can. The less work the GM has to do, the more fun they're going to have. I prefer to think of it as efficiency. Yeah, that's a better word. Efficient. I'm just efficient. So another word of warning I'll throw out there is if you do a situation where you start the players all separately and they have their own individual thread, that if one of those players drops out or stops posting completely, then you kind of have to figure out how the rest of the game is going to work without that person because you were kind of planning on having them there when everybody comes together. But if one person drops out, not only can it demoralize the GM, it can kind of also affect the players later on when they realize, oh, we really needed this person, and now they're not here. Well, that's when they're taken over by a doppelganger or a scroll or, you know, overtaken by Cthulhu, and they become a villain, and now the game revolves around killing the person who dropped out. Vicious. Lazy. Efficient. Efficient. Oh, right, right, right. Efficient, not lazy. Efficient. <laughs> you know, that's a good point, too. Is Tiffany Corda points out that if you can trust everyone, and I really hope you can trust your players, and it's not a mystery keeping everything open can actually help, so that way all your players can read the other threads and they can see things are still going on and things are still active. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Yeah, so yeah, there's so no, there's nothing wrong with using private threads, but in most cases it's better to use public threads so that people can see that things are still happening, even if it's not directly related to their character. I mean, really, I only like using a lot of private threads in a game that requires a lot of suspense, and I really want to get that nice, stinging kind of reveal that comes from having one of your party in danger and not knowing what's going on. So when they do actually come back and reveal, oh my god, the lord of this realm is actually a Rakshasha, you know... That's a great sting, and it can work, but man, it takes finesse. So the other thing that can happen is, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but your timelines can get out of sync with someone being very active and moving things along very quickly. If another player is inactive, they fall behind very quickly, especially on play-by-post, where in the span of a week, multiple posts can move the plot hours and days and sometimes even weeks into the future, but that other person is still back at the time before the plot moved forward. Well, yeah, and this can get compounded, too, to where if you're focusing on one person, other players see you're not responding to them because maybe they're slow, and then that just kind of creates this feedback loop where the person who is fast is responding faster because they're getting responded to, whereas the people who aren't fast don't see a new post because they're slow and stop posting even more. Exactly. For myself, I try to keep to a, a relatively simple rule to make sure that I don't have this problem, which is always be last in the thread. If my post is the last in the thread, I know that I've moved it along the best of my ability. Yeah, and if if some if a player falls behind or drops out, it's not a bad idea to take control of their character or even just make up what they would do. You can sometimes make things more interesting in that way if you do that. I tell you, they were always a doppelganger trying to kill the party. That's always the answer. (laughs) So I'm curious, what are some really, really bad things, like really ugly things that can happen when you start multitasking like this? What have you guys seen? Well, let's address the big elephant in the room and just go with combat. 
if I'm running exploring other mountain with the five very foolish adventurers who decided to all split up and they all trigger a combat encounter at the same time. Now I'm running five combat counters instead of one combat encounter with everybody. And Oh dear God, is that awful? I mean, unless your system is super simple, just don't do that. Combat tends to slow things down anyway. And then when you add suddenly you're going from one combat to five separate combats, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, aside from just combat having more options for each of the players to explore, which may lead them to take a little bit longer in analyzing. For the GM, it is a lot more work than a story scene where they're mostly spectating while the players are narrating and the NPCs happen to uh, to chime in here and there. I take it to a certain extreme of I try to avoid having combats going on simultaneously in separate games. If I can keep it down to one or maybe two combats that I'm managing, that limits the amount of attention drain that I have to focus on just those games where I feel I'm not putting level of attention into the other games. Oh, yeah, for sure. Combat is probably the single greatest time when you're going to lose the most players because they can't keep up. And it's also the most stressful time for the GM because there's so many moving parts. And, yeah, mag- multiplying those is, like, exponential, not just multiplicative. So speaking of splitting the DM's attention, another really nasty thing that I've seen happen is if the DM, if as an example, if it's a sandbox game, then the DM is already creating this world for the players to explore. And if you split the party, then suddenly the DM is having to design and create multiple locations, options, like locations and dungeons and NPCs, and having to do design work mid-game is almost certainly a recipe for disaster. So if you're going to split the party, then it's best that you be prepared for it beforehand rather than making your players wait to come up with things right away. And we already talked a little bit about improvising and um, being on the spot and having to come up with things on the fly. So that's a very good skill to have, but if it's a huge chore to create these things, then it can really mess things up. Just because you have the multiple threads that make it easy to do that, it doesn't mean you have multiple brain uh, brain bandwidth. And, yeah, being that creative for that long can just destroy you. And it's far, far worse if you split the group and they're exploring multiple areas because as the GM, you have to proactively consider how those areas should interact with each other. So you just actually squared the amount of work because you have to create the linkage between the areas on the fly, even as you're creating the areas and the players are exploring them in pseudo real time. Yeah, I mean, every extra moving part you add is not multiplicative. It is exponential. Ooh, that's a hard word. So ultimately what we're trying to do here is avoid, um, as RMB puts it, DM burnout. And I actually want to pose a question to Mordai and Ruben real quick. Is DM burnout kind of like an inevitable thing, or is it something that can be managed and avoided? I'd say it can be managed. However, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be some losses. I think from my experience, and I think I've seen this with other GMs that I've worked with, there's kind of a curve that you go in where you start slow, realize you can pick up some more, and you pick up more, and eventually you're going to go over your limit because you didn't know what the limit was to begin with. And that then goes one of two ways. Either 
you try too hard to try and stay at that high level and just burn yourself out because you don't have the energy to do it, or you make a conscious choice to cut yourself back down to a sustainable level. And that's going to mean that you're going to have to intentionally drop one or more games. That then leads to the players maybe being angry because, well, you're, you're killing my game and not the other game. But in the long run, it's going to be better for the community because that GM's not going to just disappear off the face of the earth saying, it was a bad idea that I ever did this in the first place. It's not. It's just something that you have to figure out where that limit is and you're going to exceed it the first time. It's just a matter of reality. Yeah, I'm with you in that I think it can be managed, but nothing lasts forever and there is no perpetual motion machine and GMs are like anything else. I think you can stave it off for a very, very long time. And I think the more help you get from your players and that they're engaged and active and bringing you ideas and doing what they can to alleviate your stress and your workload, I think the longer you can put it off. And for me, at least, I find if I can actually also be a player in a different game, that kind of creates this nice energy uptake to where somebody else is running something for me and I get the kind of very fun part of like, oh, I'm a player and I don't have to think about this. And, oh, man, he just threw me up against that really cool idea. And I can take this cool idea and I can put it in my other game. Like, I think... You can save it off for a very, very long time, but I don't think you're ever really going to fully just be able to run forever. It's just not manageable. Well, and it's it's not just the burnout factor, but the fact is that we're all people, and people's lives change. You have people who started out when they were in college and drop when they reach the, the job market for the first time and, and start having to put in long hours. Maybe if they don't drop there, they drop when they go meet a significant other and start that relationship phase of their life. If not then, it's when they have kids. If not then, well, there's other milestones I could go on and on, but I think everyone gets the point, which is that life changes and you need to adapt your enjoyment of the game to your life circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I don't think any of this. I mean, I started role-playing in a barrister a long time ago, uh, you tell, you tell. Uh, let's put it this way. Super awesome pink mohawks were really in style, man. And like Shadowrun was the new thing. Yeah. I've never had a game that lasted my whole life. No one has. And I think it's your duty that you know you're going to burn out eventually. It's your job to bring that game to a satisfying conclusion. So when you're really starting to feel the huge threads of burnout, maybe it's time to start winding things down. That's an interesting concept that's probably worth exploring. It's not just DM burnout from a, I don't have the energy to keep posting, but the story burnout of there's not much more to tell in this tale. Oh, we could do an entire episode on that. We'll have to add that one to the list, but for the moment, I'm going to rope you guys back in and bring us back on topic. You started it. (laughs) I just wanted to see where it would go. I was curious. (laughs) So... All right, and the last point I want to bring up before we move on to our next topic is that, in general, on play-by-post, that time management is really important when you try to multitask. You have to be able to give everyone the same amount of time and attention. It, It can be difficult, I'll admit, when combat is happening for one thread or one game and not for the other, but ultimately, you want to give the respect to your players of being able to spend the same amount of time on 
they're on everybody's posts. You don't want people ending up feeling neglected in the end. Yeah, which easier to do with the fewer people you have. I mean, just goes back. More threads, more work. Make sure you're ready to put in the work. Yeah, it's a different style of time management when you're dealing with an asynchronous play-by-post game. When you're at a tabletop, you're trying to cram in as much action and adventure into that three, four, eight-hour session that you can manage. On play-by-post, you have to create that energy slowly so that people continue to enjoy the story and stay engaged from day-to-day, week-to-week when they don't have eight hours of munching Cheetos and rolling bones. All right. And with that, I believe we will move on to our next topic, which is maps and movement. So maps are kind of like this core idea in a lot of tabletop role-playing games. They're used for combat. They're used to show you where your character is in a fantasy setting. They're used to determine whether or not you can actually hit an enemy. They're really important, but on play-by-post, they're not really as intuitive as moving your little miniature across the playmat. And I lost my train of thought. In games where tactical combat is a thing, and you need to know precise positioning, such as in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, GURPS is often used for this, Savage Worlds like their map too, uh, you need maps to know precisely where people are, so when players use their combat abilities, they know exactly who they can hit and who they can affect. And yeah, this, the kind of super height of this was probably 4th edition Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, but it also goes for stuff like Warhammer or any tabletop, like, war game. They've, since D&D is one of the grandfathers of the role-playing genre, a lot of games like to use maps. Now, not all of them. A lot of newer games don't use them. But for the most part, a lot of games, you're going to want some way to tell who is where when a fight breaks out. Let's face it, we all love the really cool-shaped miniatures and our token images on maps, and we get really attached to visual things. We're visual creatures, so having a map is hardly a bad thing, provided you can manage it. So what we really need to discuss is how are ways to, to manage, what can we use, what are our tools in the toolbox to make maps and movement an integral part of the experience? Yeah, well put. I mean, I can tell you, you can fireball three orcs. I can show you a map, and you can realize yourself, you can fireball three orcs. To go back to something we talked about a couple episodes ago, it's all about player engagement and keeping your players interested in the game and being able to show them on the map, hey, oh, I can fireball three orcs, and not have the DM tell you that. It makes it makes combat more interesting for your players. For the, It's kind of like a puzzle for them to solve. Be like, okay, well, I can do this, or I can do this, or, oh, this seems like the best option currently. And avoiding the back and forth of, well, can I do this? Waiting for a GM to post, no, you can't do that because of this. And then I post, well, can I do that? No, you can't do that because of this and this. That type of iteration can just slow the game down tremendously. It's much easier if the players have the agency to know the information they need to know to decide their next action. Well, yeah, let's face it. A visual image is a lot more efficient modes of transmitting knowledge than the back and forth is. So in a lot of ways, maps can make things run faster. I'm shocked that no one in the text chat wrote a picture is worth a thousand words. Man, I have the art degree. You think I would have come up with that, but no. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you're going to do this, and we're certainly saying maps are awesome, the first way you can do it is just fully embrace it. Basically, you post a link 
are just the straight up inline image of your map for the fight. And I really recommend you just grid it out like they do in chess. So one side is lettered or no, one side is labeled. That's the word labeled with letters. And the other side is labeled with numbers. And when players move, they just shout out their grid coordinates of where they're going. It takes a lot of time, but it's by far the most kind of true to tabletop way you can do it. So one thing I will mention is that available to community supporters of Mythweavers is the built-in map function, which allows you to import images and tokens and those types of things, which makes it very quick and easy to just throw a link in a thread and say, here's the map for this combat, let me know where you're moving to and I'll move you there. Or I believe the functionality is there for players to move themselves. I I haven't used it in a long time, but I'm pretty sure that's an option as well. As of maybe last year, that's true. I don't know. I haven't used it in a while either, but it was cool when I used it. It's worth pointing out that this is still a feature very much in beta. So there are other options out there, ranging from extremely simple Google Sheets to complicated campaign cartographer. I mean, I've actually even used just the table function in Mythweavers to just grid out a very simple table with coordinates and just a text description of what was in each square. I mean, it's a kind of a pain in the butt, but certainly works. So just to throw a couple names out there, I haven't used most of these, but I'll throw a couple other names out there. But there's Animap, Auto Realm, um, Dungeon Painter, Dungeon Forge, Fractal Mapper, Stone Sword, Tiamat the Tile Mapper. I mean, there's if you go to Google and you search for dungeon or combat map maker, then you will find hundreds of results within seconds. And I'm actually going to throw a link in the text chat here to a kind of catalog of some of the most popular ones. And for those of you listening to the recording at home, that link will be in the relevant link section of the forum post after this goes live on SoundCloud. So yeah, I've personally used Auto Realm and Fractal Mapper. Both are great. Uh, I also personally really like uh, Campaign Cartographer and Dungeon Mapper from them. They're not free. you got to pay a decent amount of money for them. But once you learn how to use them, and they are kind of a CAD program, so the learning curve is a little steep, but they're great, and you can produce really, really nice-looking maps. I actually just recently spent a little bit of time messing around with Campaign Cartographer. I reinstalled it and was messing around with it, and I realized... I never took the time to learn it properly in the first place, so I basically had to relearn the entire program, and there is quite a steep learning curve, but I realized how much potential there is in that program, and it's quickly becoming one of my favorites for designing battle maps and dungeons. Oh yeah, once you learn how to use it, it's amazingly powerful, and everything you produce with it is actually your own copyright, and you own that. Uh, I believe you can even actually publish them in books if you need to. I also threw up a link for a site called Donjon, and they have a random dungeon mapper that's really, really good. Personally, I'm a fan of Dungeonographer, which is a relatively new entrant to the, the arena, and by new I mean within the last five to eight years. Java-based, works on all platforms, and has a bunch of uh, nifty built-in tokens and exporting features, and if you want to pay a little bit of money, they have a whole bunch of icon sets that you can use. One other thing I'll go ahead and throw out there is I don't know that a lot of people actually know this, but Mythweavers has a built-in cave and dungeon generator, and I will go ahead and throw a link for that in the text chat. And it's not the most powerful software out there, but it 
is good if you need a dungeon like right this second and you need to use it immediately. So I used it three weeks running in my tabletop game, and it's really fun. It makes great goblin caves. I literally just broke out the cave generator to build a cave. It's going to be used for upcoming scene in my Ravenloft game. Strahd eats them, right? That's how that ends, right? No, Strahd is actually not involved in this particular part of Ravenloft, so unfortunately there will be no uh, uh, vampire bites. But there are creatures down there with lots of sharp, pointy teeth. Does that count? Eh, it's like saying Diet Coke is Coke. <laughs> so now that we've talked a little bit about maps, I want to talk a little bit about movement through those maps. And if you're not using a map, then how can you handle movement uh, fluidly on play-by-post? Well, as a fate guy, you can always do the super awesome fate zones. Uh, you also do fate, right, Mord? You can explain this, right? Well, the zones concept is pretty straightforward. What you're trying to do is abstract it to, am I close enough to close in and hit the guy with my sword, or am I a little further away such that I can hit him with a small-distance ranged weapon, or am I a little further than that and I can hit him with a long-distance ranged weapon, or am I so far away that no weapon that I have available is going to get him, but conversely, no weapon he has available is going to get me? It's a pretty straightforward concept, and, and I've used it not just in Fate games, but also in many other rules light systems where really don't care so much about the details. It's more the story that goes along with it. And having said that, I really put it on the players to, does it make a good story if you're able to go get in this guy's face? If so, you can go get in the guy's face. Yeah, uh, and that's similar to what 13th Age does as well, where they have either distant, near, engaged, kind of thing. Uh, I did post a link for the 13th Age combat rules, which if you're actually running something that usually requires a map, like Dungeons and Dragons, it has really good rules for abstracting that for a more play-by-post kind of friendly format. Uh, they're definitely something you should look at. Uh, so another system that kind of throws all of the rules out the window is you can basically just say you can go where you need to go and you can hit what you need to hit. Uh, this is kind of like the rule of cool. So kind of what Mordai was talking about earlier, that if you need to do that and you think it would be cool to do that, then yeah, you can totally do that. This kind of doesn't work with systems like D&D, where, for example, a fireball has a very specific area of effect that it can and cannot hit. But it's still kind of like, oh, this is just the easiest way to do it. It doesn't need a map. It can all be done in the theater of the mind. It just makes things go a little bit more quickly rather than trying to figure out, okay, I need to move to this square to do what I need to do. I want to jump back to zones. One cool thing zones also had is in Fate, zones all have aspects, which kind of are quick descriptors for what's in that zone. So if we're fighting the evil cardinal in his church because he's betrayed, you know, France... Uh, there might be the zone of the upper balcony and has like the aspect of curtains. And then you have like the lower balcony and then you have the dais. And there might be a border and borders are basically their ways to make moving between zones more difficult. So between the upper balcony and the lower balcony, there might be a border. But if you maybe use the aspect of the curtains, you can throw your dagger on the curtain and slide down. So zones can also help you 
set up descriptors of how hard it is to move between the zones to kind of make combat a little more dynamic like a map would be. So another system I'll mention is I personally have never played this style of game, but a hex crawl, which is basically a you get a map of an area or a country or whatever it is, and the players travel through hexes on which is a hex-shaped grid, hexagon-shaped grid that they explore and move through this area or region and clear it out as they go. Hex crawls are a big D&D thing. Uh, there's some, uh, I think Pathfinder had Kingmaker. There were a couple of other things. Um, hex crawls are a little easier to deal with because you're updating the hex very rarely because the hex is for, the scale on hex crawls is miles. So players might only move between one or two hexes per adventure. So they are easier to update, but they're definitely another form of map that you have to think about. And this is the one form of map I recommend you don't abstract. If you're running the hex scroll, you want the map. Well, frequently with the hex scroll, you also want the submap of the small area where you're having the individual encounter. So it's it's really another layer rather than elimination of the tactical. Though you can have hex tactical maps. Those are fun, too. I'm just saying that downstairs I still have my D&D red box and blue box, and the blue box was what introduced me to hex crawls in the first place. I should break that out sometime. So this whole discussion of hex crawls kind of ties nicely into another point I want to make, and that sometimes, so most of the maps we've been talking about have been for combat or a region of a world, but sometimes you need a map of an entire world, especially if it's one you've created yourself or... It's one that you want players to be able to move freely be between major locations. And maps like this, there are just as many programs and systems to do that as there is to make combat and tactical maps. Um, one thing I'll go ahead and vouch for here is the Cartographer's Guild, which is one of the largest websites I know of for making fantasy, sci-fi, city, village maps on the internet. And it includes a bunch of tutorials. It can show you how to make a map from scratch. So if you're trying to world build, these resources can be extremely helpful. And I'll throw these this link in the text chat as well. Uh, much love for Cartographer's Guild. I've got several maps up there. So if you are going to use something from them, A, make sure you have permission to use it. B, if you do, maybe ask permission. And most importantly, post credit for the people whose work you're using it's only polite. Yeah, that goes not only for whole maps, but if you're going to borrow tokens or character images, make sure that it's either freely released or you have complied with that whatever license is that the artist has elected to use. There are still plenty of people who use images that I recognize from very famous D&D books from a long time ago. That's illegal, and we frown on that at Mythweavers. Well, beyond that, it's just polite. I mean, those of us who create images for a living, we sell those images and we're not credited. You're kind of stealing from us. And it's really, really nicely polite to actually at least credit us, please. And just to double down on Cartographer's Guild, their tutorials are awesome. Anyone can do them. It doesn't take that much skill. Well, it takes some, but I firmly believe anybody can make really nice-looking campaign maps for their game if you just put in a little bit of time. And they have a lot of uh, tutorials that use GIMP and other open-source free programs. 
You don't need a bunch of money to do this. You just need time and a little bit of dedication. Man, I got a little soapboxy there. <laughs> so I'll second what Ruben said. The tutorials on Cartographer's Guild is absolutely amazing. And I actually used one of the tutorials on there to create the world map for Pond. And that map turned out better than I ever could have hoped. Um, I, I did a little minor tweaking along the way. I didn't follow the tutorial 100%, but I followed about 90% of it, and I think it turned out really, really good. You did a great job on that. Uh, if I were to recommend any sort of tutorials, look how to do rivers, look how to do land masses, and look how to do mountains. If you have those three things, you can kind of fake everything else. Elevation change is really the hardest thing to do with any sort of map because how those land masses got to be the way they are is not really intuitive unless you're a geologist. Actually, take a geology class because they're awesome, and you should, but also they're super helpful for gaming. All right. I believe it is time for us to move on to our next topic for the evening, which is part five of our player archetype series. And tonight we're going to be talking about Team Rocket slash the Lovebirds. And those names are kind of silly, but I think you'll understand what I mean when I explain what they or when we explain what they are. Can I just say when I was walking home from the store today, I saw two people dressed as Team Rocket. Somehow that doesn't surprise me in Portland. Yeah, I know. Just wanted to say that because it was super fun. I knew a pair who had cars and their license plates. The first person's license plate read C-O-L-L-E, and the other one read C-T-I-V-E. And they were deep, deep Star Trek fans. That's awesome. Have we derailed you enough, Nate? I'm getting there, slowly but surely. So, (laughs) Team Rocket, to put it very simply, is either a pair or a small group of players who you have in your game who kind of band together to make the story primarily about them and kind of exclude the rest of the party. Oftentimes players are left out when this happens for obvious reasons that they're not being included in the story. But the idea of kind of like a cool kids club or a click within a role-playing group is kind of... It's poison. Yeah. Game poison. But also happens a lot. Yeah, so this can especially happen to people who join the game late or who weren't there from the very beginning. Um, it's In those cases, I think it's mostly unintentional, but it does happen where the rest of the group has these inside jokes and all these funny moments, and that one or two people kind of feel left out from what's going on around them. Another way this can come about is if you have that diversity in posting rates that we're talking about, you can end up unintentionally having a uh, click generated completely from the players who are posting once or twice a day, and the person who can only get there three or four times a week is completely behind the cool story that the other players were inventing. So the other kind of half of this this archetype is the lovebirds, and most commonly I've seen this at tabletops rather than on play-by-post, but sometimes what you'll get is you'll get a couple people who are in a romantic relationship, and they are basically there just to be there, or they try to make the game entirely about them and their relationship together. It's similarly disastrous when people start getting left out as a result of that. Uh, This can also just develop when a couple of players really start clicking together. So it can develop kind of naturally, but yeah, still also disastrous. And frankly, with either of these problems, the first step has to be 
taking the problem players aside and talking to them out of character and just say, hey, what you're doing isn't great for the game. Can we talk about a way to maybe not do this and let the other players in? Would you really like to work with me to make the game better? That has to be your first step. Absolutely. You want to be diplomatic with people. You don't want to immediately go to the extreme of kicking them out. You want to try and see if everybody can work together and fix it as a group rather than I'm the GM, so I'm telling you you have to fix this. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, be diplomatic. Do it privately. Don't call them out in public. That never ends well. But, yeah, you got to talk to them out of character before you do any sort of in-character response. It's far, far easier to misinterpret a in-character action as being against the character specifically, not against the player behavior, which is what you're really trying to address. And be mindful that because this is a text medium, text lacks the subtleties of speech. So try and be a little more understanding and try to be a little more clear when you talk about the problem. If it does get to the point where things are still not working out after you've talked to them even multiple times, then for the lovebirds specifically, I think it's easiest to kind of try to split them up, whether it's to have only one of them in a scene at a time. And on play-by-post, this is kind of difficult because if not everyone is present, then you have to split off into a separate thread, and we've already been through all of that. But... um if you can, try to split them up and keep them from taking over the game completely with their uh, love birdiness. That's an official term. I buy it. Banter is more efficient. Yeah, you can do this usually. You can usually break the lovebirds apart by luring them with something that will make the other partner happy. That's how you break them apart kind of independently. And if you do break them apart like this, try to throw them against people they weren't responding to beforehand and force some sort of situation where they have to work together. Yeah, I think that's a critical aspect that touches on what we were discussing earlier, which is building the relationships among all of the players will benefit the game. I can't remember which episode it was that we talked about it, but the more the players want to interact with each other, not only is it easier on the GM, but it makes the game energetic, propels it forward. All right, well, and RMB kind of brings it up. RMB. Uh, yeah. What happens when the situation with lovebirds is only one-sided? What do you do when it's only one person who likes the other person, and maybe the other person is trying to escape? At that point, I would say give the other person the option to escape. Yeah, I'm kind of with that. That just seems to be like maybe you've got a bad player, and that player needs to go. Well, sometimes they jumped into that particular aspect of the character because it was a way for them to attach to the character and, and keep it moving. And that was the best thing they could think of at the time. And now it's the only thing that they can think of. Sometimes they just need to spark another option, some way to grow the character in a different direction. And that will diffuse the situation. Oh, that's a really good point. You can just give them a better, different plot hook. Maybe they were just desperate for plot hooks and just grab the first thing that came to mind. And I've run a number of seventh C games and, Intrigue and romance kind of go hand-in-hand hand with that system, so you're going to have to deal with lovebirds to a certain degree. You can embrace it. You can build that as part of the game as long as all of the players recognize that that's a part of the game and they're going to either get invested in it by themselves or find a way that you can tie them into the menage. 
So on the flip side of that, when you have like a Team Rocket situation, it's more about bringing everyone together onto the same page. And as a DM, we've said it more than once, keeping really good notes is really important. So especially on Mythweavers, where you can have hundreds or even thousands of posts and really long-running games, a new person coming in is going to feel very, very far behind, and they're very quickly going to get overwhelmed. So if it's possible, you should, and I would almost insist that you do, have a short synopsis or something to get them caught up so they don't have to go back and read those hundreds of thousands of posts. Okay, a hundred thousands a lot, but you get my point. I exactly know what you're talking about. I have actively avoided replacing a character in my Ravenloft game precisely because I don't want to have to explain to them right now everything that's gone in and then throw them into the situation where things are murky, they don't have all the information, and people are distrustful of each other. It's going to be a challenge. I need the the perfect right player, and I need the perfect right intro. So I'm biding my time until I can set the stage correctly. So in addition to the synopsis, give them a plot hook the uh, Team Rocket needs. Go out of your way to make the new player important to the old players and force them to interact with that player to get the information they need to go forward. And that actually ties very nicely into our next point, which is you can kind of intentionally not have the story be about Team Rocket or the Lovebirds. This kind of works for both situations. So you can have an NPC say, hey, there's this really important person who isn't Team Rocket or the Lovebirds, and you need to go talk to them, or the the party needs... Or, as an example, say you have the Lovebirds off on one side, but the NPC points to someone who's on the other side and says, hey, you, you're really important now. Here's why you're really important. And suddenly the game kind of shifts from being about that group and more about the rest of the party who is trying to figure out what to do with this new information. Yeah, if you can, introduce the new player as being in peril from an old enemy. And that way, when they save him, they're like, oh, why do you attack you? Well, I have the mystical MacGuffin you need. Something like that. Basically, just give a huge radical shift in focus. And when you have to introduce the new people, focus heavily on them and not so much on the MacGuffin or the Team Rocket people. That way, the Team Rocket people have to kind of start horning in on the new guys to kind of get attention again. I was just going to compliment Ruben because that's a thought that I had not had before and one that I'm going to take back to when I insert new characters into the games. I need to consciously put more effort into engaging that specific character above and beyond the story that I was running already just so that they feel that they can get up to speed and and are included. Yeah, I mean, your big job is to upset the status quo, and the best way to upset the status quo is to radically change the focus away from the existing players to the new players. Now, I will mention that there is potential, I've not seen it happen, but there is potential that when you do that radical shift of focus, that it can kind of backfire on you, and the people who have been the focus of attention suddenly go, oh, the game's not about me anymore, I don't care anymore. I've not seen that happen, but it is a potential. Well, then that would argue that player maybe wasn't great to begin with. That is an entirely fair point, absolutely. (laughs) Well, yeah, and maybe just talk to the other players out of character going... Hey, everybody, Bob here is new. I want to get Bob hooked in quick, so we're going to focus on Bob right now, and we'll get back to you, uh, Larry. 
All right. Do we have any final thoughts before we move on to the game of the week? I would just say that if you can get Team Rocket on your side and get them working with you, they can be an incredible force for good because they're incredibly interested in your game and they're hooked in. If you can get them with you on, hey, we got to introduce the person and they're willing to help you, that can totally help make new players feel really, really welcome. The best Team Rocket is when 100% of the players are on the team. Absolutely. I will 100% agree with that. Alrighty, we are now going to move straight into the game of the week. This week's game of the week is Chronicles of Arboros, Settlers of Corim, being run by Chingo Chaplo. Arboros is a fantasy world that Chingo Chaplo has designed, which this game will be set in. Chingo Chaplo describes Arboros as a world inhabited by a myriad of sapient beings where magic and monsters are real, where the gods themselves lend their powers to chosen devotees in their struggle for dominance over the world of mortals. Chronicles of Arboros, Settlers of Corum, is a sandbox game using Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, where background events will be occurring that the players can choose to partake in or ignore. Interestingly, this game will have the player characters start at level 3, which I believe is a sweet spot for D&D 5th Edition games. It's when the characters really start to come into their own and gain abilities that truly define their character. Chingo Chaplo is looking for six players, and I imagine those spots will fill up quickly, so get those applications in before it is too late. And I will go ahead and throw the link to that game in the text chat. As always, for those of you listening to the recording, that link will be in the relevant link section of the forum post. Apply now! Supplies limited! Interestingly, as I was reading over this advertisement, I noticed that many of the suggestions that we had put in our previous podcast about how to structure an advertisement to really maximize your interest potential and number of the good quality applicants that you get that will fit your game are all on display in this particular advertisement. So someone has been listening to Weaving Myths. Oh, the little babies grow up so fast. Definitely. This is one of the best examples for an advertisement I have seen in recent memory, and I was extremely impressed when I saw it. Yeah, I was too, and I think I might apply too, because this looks super fun. It even has a grading rubric, Nathan. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'd be willing to subject myself to that. It's more fun to be the be on the other side of the grading rubric. You know you like it. <laughs> All right, and now it is time for everybody's favorite part of the evening, the question and answer segment. So you can ask us anything you'd like, be it about Mythweavers, gaming, play-by-post. It can be about anything you want, so bring on the questions. I know earlier in chat I saw several people had questions, so please feel free to ask them again now, and we will be happy to talk about them. All right, so djacob91 asks, uh, what are our thoughts on co-GMs in regard to burnout? How much would it help? Is it a potential issue? Or what are the potential issues? Is it worth it? And what do you guys think? I mean, very briefly, I believe that we could spend an entire topic talking about this. But to put it briefly, I think that co-GMs are good if you have someone as dedicated to the game as yourself. Um, it's important that if you're going to rely on a co-GM that they don't disappear suddenly. Two key thoughts for co-GMs. One is it's another avenue of communication that you need to maintain open. So it can actually increase your work and not decrease it unless, and here's the second thought, you need to have very carefully structured roles and each of you needs to understand what you're going to be responsible for doing. 
because while it can work really well, if it's well-defined in an oiled machine and each one of you is fulfilling your job, if there are gaps and the game falls into one of those gaps, you can end up crashing and burning very easily. And I would further add, make sure that by co-GM, you don't mean co-GM who's going to run a wholly separate game in the same setting, so you're really just kind of both running separate games in the same setting. You actually want somebody who's actually going to lessen your workload and not just kind of, you know, double it. And if I am going to pick a co-GM, I want somebody I'm really familiar with, somebody I've gamed with multiple times, so we know that we have the same GM philosophies, the same game goals. It's not something you enter into lightly. This is a really serious partnership that you really need to know who your partner is. So you're actually lessening the workload for both of you instead of really just running something in tandem. So before we go to the next question, I'll very briefly throw out there, there's also, it's not really supported in the Mythweaver's uh, infrastructure, but you can also have like a sub-GM who is either someone that you're kind of mentoring through the process of being a GM, and you can kind of offload the more menial tasks onto them, or it's someone that you can work with very closely to come up with ideas for the game. So uh, as an example, the leverage game that I'm working on getting ready right now, I'm going to be working very closely with the mastermind, who is a player technically, but I'm going to bounce ideas off of them for... Uh, potential jobs that the team can undertake and potential solutions that they come up with for the job. Well, Nate, in the last two leverage games I ran and you ran, did we both play the masterminds in the other game and kind of basically both became GMs? I think that did ultimately happen. I, that sounds about right. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I chose you as a mastermind is I wanted another fellow GM because in that situation, it's great having a player was almost like a GM, but not quite, who can bounce ideas off of and help with. Well, the two of you can all do your Team Rocket Lovebird stuff on your leverage games, but I think it is a broader concept of if someone is going to be in a leadership position within the story or is going to be central to the story, they need to have a little bit more involvement and agency, and it almost tends toward that co-GM relationship that you're talking about, where they are invested in the back end of the story almost as much as they're invested in the front end of the story. Well, I think in some respects, the line between a co- or sub-GM and a chief player can really start getting blurry. And in a lot of games, you'll have that one player who's always there, who's really responsive, who reads all your material, and it becomes a little natural to start relying on that kind of chief player to kind of act as a go-between between the GM and the rest of the, you know, players. Way, way back in the old days, in the original D&D, they even actually had a position of caller, which was the guy in the player group who would call out what the rest of the group was doing. It's a little like that, only kind of for much more modern times. So RMB asks, what about a game where the DM expects the players to go off the rails, but if they follow the rails faithfully, they end up with a bad result? Sounds like it almost sounds like the plot is flawed in a way because the ultimate goal of any role playing game is for everybody to have a good time. And if the players go through and all of a sudden you throw this bad result at them without any sort of warning, 
then nobody's having fun by the time things are resolved. I can think of a couple examples where this archetype might actually fit. And the one that comes readily to mind is a apocalyptic game or a zombie type game where unless a miracle happens, the players are going to get their brains eaten. So the players do need to break out of the mold to some degree in order to stave off the, shall I say, inevitable. And when I say inevitable, that makes me think of Call of Cthulhu or Paranoia, where the inevitable is Cthulhu is going to eat your face or your clones are all going to get shot or disintegrated by friend computer. It can be fun to lose, but knowing that losing is a significant possibility needs to be recognized up front. And I would even argue if that happens, maybe ask the players why they're following along so closely. Uh, Do they not feel comfortable jumping outside of the rails? Do they think they don't have a choice? I mean, to me, this almost seems, A, like Nathan said, it's a sign of maybe it's a flawed plot. But I'm also thinking, like, maybe this is a sign that your poor players might have had a few, frankly, terrible GMs, and they're not used to the ideas that they can even have the option of going outside the rails. I mean, have you guys ever had that, where you've got players who don't like to get at all creative because they've been punished in the past for doing so? I can't think of a time when that's ever happened to me. I've never really had any players that have been punished for being creative. And even if I did have a player like that, I would try to encourage them to be creative and be like, hey, look, this is a problem that doesn't have an easy answer. You need to think outside the box and perhaps circumvent some sort of established script or rails to beat it. It seems like it might be an outgrowth of many of the older scripted modules, particularly in the D&D genre. It's, there's several that are kind of infamous for setting up the players to fail. And not really a business that we want to be in. I don't think we ever wanted to really be in it in the first place. But it can be a very easy trap to fall into is the GM being an antagonist to the players when really it should be a GM enabling the group to play out their story and have fun. R&B follows up with a, you know, if the point is that they discover along the way that the plot that they've been following is flawed despite having good intentions, uh, I've actually not run this game, but I've been associated with the game somewhat along the lines of what he's thinking, which really falls into the category of you were working for who you thought was the good guy only to find out halfway through oh, no, wait, in fact, he was the bad guy and you've been perpetuating his evil schemes. This can be very powerful and effective, but you have to have the right group of players who's willing to deal with that kind of twist, and you've got to give them the opportunity to discover it along the way because if it just comes and blindsides them, then you're going to be dealing with lots of hurt feelings. So, yeah, in that situation, I see it most often with a lot of my Shadowrun players they're so darn paranoid of the Johnson screw that they take no risks because they're so used to having other GMs that take advantage of every tiny little mistake they make. So they kind of just get so bogged down and making sure nothing ever goes wrong and never deviating because they're so used to having, frankly, what I think of as bad GMs take advantage of those unfairly that they've been conditioned to expect paranoia and treachery in every single situation. And it's kind of awful. 
That's actually why I stopped running Shadowrun games on Mythweavers, ultimately. <laughs> I mean, that's why I actually posted GM Manifesto saying the Johnson screw is stupid and I don't do it. All right, we have time for just a couple more questions. Well, I got one. What's making you guys happy this week? Well, I'm sure I am not alone when I say that I am excited that Starfinder released this week. I am a huge fan of Pathfinder. It's one of my favorite systems of all time. And I am very happy that they decided to go with a sci-fi thing for their next quote-unquote big project. And Starfinder looks like it's it's going to be fantastic. I haven't had a chance to read through all of the rules yet, but I'm slowly working my way through them. And what I've seen so far, I'm very impressed with. Uh, is that anything like Dragon Star? So basically what they did is they took the Pathfinder setting and time shifted it 2000 years in the future. So I don't I'm not familiar with Dragon Star, so I don't know for sure, but uh it's basically they took all the fantasy races, all the magic, all of the things and then moved it forward to a point where they're flying through space and traveling to different planets and all those things. Well, dang, Nathan, now you got me excited about that. That sounds pretty awesome. It's like Star Frontiers for a new generation. Oh, man, that was great. I'm excited about that, too. What do you got, Mord? Well, I'm really excited that we've gotten a reboot of the sheet development kit from our head administrator, Rodrigo. So the three of us are going to get to start working on some sheets for the first time in a long time. I'm also excited about that. That's awesome. Yep, we're we're still working a couple of the kinks out of the system, but I'm optimistically estimating that within the next week or so that true development will be able to continue on character sheets. So long-neglected systems that have needed character sheets for a very long time will get updates and get created and we'll be able to expand our library. Well, and I'm super excited to start working on all the fake versions of the sheets. And Dungeon World. And also, so Tales from the Loop won a bajillion tons of awards at the Ennies last night. And it's a super awesome RPG, and I'm super excited about it, and I love it. It's like Tales from the 80s that never existed based on the art of Simon Stallenhag. And he's the dude who did all those really cool illustrations that had, like, robots and, like, huge towers with teenage kids. It's like Stranger Things, but even cooler. And it's super awesome, and you should check it out. And I post the link to it in the uh, chat. And I'm also super excited that my Shadowrun Anarchy game is closing applications this week. And I have so many great choices. It's going to be so hard, and I'm so excited for that. I suppose I'll go ahead and throw it out there since Ruben did that my leverage game will be closing for applications next week. And so far I have a few applications and they all look exceptional. I'm kind of terrified of having to make a decision for that one. Oh, and if you haven't applied, you should because Nate runs a really, really fun leverage game. Plus he uses a grading rubric. Not for this game, actually. I am not using the rubric for this game. Tiffany Corda wants to know what makes a good TV or movie tie-in for an RPG. And, well, considering I'm running a leverage game, I'll speak about this a little bit. The big thing is you don't want to copy what the show or movie did. So you can take the ideas that they have, the core structure of what they're doing, but you don't want to just copy and paste the episodes or the movie or the sequels 
you want to be able to tell a new story or have new characters that are just as interesting as the original, and you don't want to take it as so much as a continuation or a replacement for what already happened. You want to take it as a spinoff or extension of what's already there. Um, you want to have original ideas while still staying true to the original source material. Yeah, I'll pile on with that because I'm running a Stargate game. It's really helpful when the world that you're joining your story to has opening hooks where you can fit in relatively easily. Stargate is great because while the primary 10-season run all followed Stargate SG-1, there were a number of other teams off doing other interesting off-world missions that are seldom talked about. It's very easy to go take one of those teams and go run with it for a while and and have fun doing entirely different space-based alien adventures. Well, and I would also argue that a tie-in should be better about emulating the feel and genre than it is about emulating the actual game. For my example, the Doctor Who RPG, their initiative system, you don't roll initiative. It's ranked by talkers, actors, runner or talkers, runners, actors, fighters. And that's how initiative goes. People who talk go first, followed by people who run, followed by people who act, and then finally people who want to fight go last. And that emulates how the show goes without actually having to stick to the show. And I would also argue in any tie-in, if the people from the show the game is tying into are more important than your players, it's a no-go. The people in the show can't be more important than your players because your players are coming to be their own big damn heroes, and you don't want them to play second fiddle to, oh, no, you can't do that because Buffy actually killed that demon, so you kind of suck. That cannot happen. Yeah, there are definitely close-form TV shows where there's really not anything going on outside of the core group of people um, that many uh, sitcoms fall into that trap where there really aren't any other characters other than the, the five or six friends. The rest of it are just, you know, kind of fluff. So you have to have the, the richness of the world that you can live in a little sandbox off on your own and not interfere with, you know, the, the big people. Forgotten Realms is a great example of that, just to, to bring it back to a, a gaming example. Uh, I would also say that if you cannot watch an episode of the show or movie that's being tied in by the RPG and break that episode down by what happened in RPG mechanics, they've kind of failed. To this day, I can watch a leverage episode and see how it works with the RPG, which to me is a very good sign that the RPG is doing what it's supposed to do. All right, I think we have time for just one more question. Ooh, you want to read that, Nate? Sure. So Rising Zan wants to know, when you are currently running a game, do you ever have trouble focusing on that game instead of, let's say, the three future games you are planning? Yes, all the time. I have this problem constantly. I'm always excited about the next new thing, and right now I'm currently planning a Starfinder game, and it's driving me nuts that I poorly timed my Leverage game. But I'm so excited for the Leverage game that I want to make sure that gets up and running before I start the Starfinder game. Oh, yeah. The appeal of the new shiny is strong. And I've kind of made myself my own rule. I don't start a new game until the last game I started has been going for a month. And I think that's a rule everybody should follow because otherwise 
you'll burn yourself out. Whew, a month. That's pretty short. And play by post, you might only have 10 posts in the game. I like my players and they're good. I usually try to wait until, and I feel kind of bad saying this, but I try to wait to start a new game until one of my current games peters out and dies, which I know it's kind of sad to plan for that sort of thing, but it happens more frequently than I'd like to admit. So I try to wait for one of those to go away until before I start a new one. Well, how many pages is your past games in the profile? I think mine's four or five. I mean, it happens. I have just looked, and I am up to three whole pages. Only two and a half here, so I'm well behind you guys. Better my games just last forever. I'm um, three and a half. God, that's kind of depressing to look at. <laughs> it's just a history of all the fun you've had. Oh, man, some of these games are great. Like, I have really fun memories. Some of these lasted four to six years. All right, and I think we, with that, we will wrap up the Q&A segment for the evening. But before we wrap up for the evening, I would just like to take a moment to remind everyone that Weaving Myths officially has a Patreon. We have several tiers of rewards, ranging from us taking your topic suggestions more seriously than non-patrons, all the way up to receiving a free copy of my latest novel. Additionally, when we reach certain monthly goals, we'll be putting out extra content that is exclusive to patrons. Contributions start at as little as $1 per month, so it doesn't take much at all to show your support. The patrons over at Patreon help make this podcast possible, so if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to check it out at patreon.com slash mythweavers. One last thing I should note, Weaving Myths is, always has been, and will always continue to be free. Full episodes are always uploaded to SoundCloud within two days of the episode being recorded, and all normal episodes will always be available for download or streaming, free of charge. And I'd like to note, we're all paying out of this out of pocket, and the money we get is just going towards not losing beers every month. So, thank you everyone so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the comments and questions from the text chat as always. I'm Nathan, and I've been joined by the magnificent Ruben. Uh, goodbye, everybody. And Mordai. Toodaloo. Thanks for listening, and keep on weaving those myths.